bless us, Lord, for we have sinned. No, no, that's, that's not right. Bless us, Lord, for we are going to sin. As you know, our last episode on comic book adaptations ended on a dramatic cliffhanger of cosmic obliteration. And despite being self-professed comic fanatics, we are going to turn a temporary blind eye to that morsel of podcast continuity. But this hypocrisy is for a noble cause, Father. For a Netflix series has been given onto us that we... Eric, can you wrap it up? Really want to start the review. Uh... Uh, guys, I thought this Midnight Mass episode 3 riff was between me and our Lord God. Hey, every minute you spend doing a bad Hamish Linkletter impression is a minute I'm not talking about Neil Diamond. <sighs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, fine. Screw it. Let's just say in our father, and then we'll get on with the review. <sighs> our Flanagan, who art Mike, hated be thy hands. Before thee we kneel, for Kyle is a wheel. In Midworld as it is in Fairhope. And give us this Doug Jones day our daily dread. And forgive us our criticisms. As we forgive those who slept on before I wake. And lead us not into the tunnel from absentia. But deliver us from jump scares. For thine is the feardom. And the horror. And the scary forever. Amen. Hey, should we say a couple Hail Kates too? Those will have to wait. It's time for mass. And welcome to a very special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger and joined by co-host Jacob Jones Goldstein. Hi, everybody. And Nick Leamy. Hey, how are you doing? I am fabulous. How are you? I'm good. Life is beautiful. I'm very interested in seeing how this discussion goes. So as the title indicates, we are doing Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass. Yay! He's our favorite person. Hey, look at Jake coming with the Paul Lynn before me. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm hyped for this. I have been fucking ready to talk about this show since I got lucky enough uh, the Wednesday before it came out to be uh, in a Netflix preview. So I cool. got to see the first two episodes and then see a Q&A with the creators, with Flanagan and everybody else. And halfway through that, I realized I was fucked because... <laughs> Ten seconds into this, I think I tweeted something, or not tweeted, I messaged these guys, and then I realized, I can't do that, they can't watch this, we don't talk about this stuff, and I, I knew pretty much about a minute into the show we were going to do an episode on it, Yep. and I just, I had to sit, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it, and they, they said, you know, don't even post anything on social media, and I, I've been chomping at the bit, and then we, it came out, you know, we watched it, and we, we did indeed decide to do this episode, and we don't really talk about this stuff prior to these episodes we try to keep our takes all fresh and i was literally talking to my 80 year old mother about this because i had <laughs> to talk to somebody my wife wants to watch it so i couldn't spoil it for her my brother was in the middle of watching it. i was waiting for these two and i'm just looking around it's like who the hell do i talk to and it occurred to me both my parents are ministers 
So I could talk to him about this one in certain terms <laughs> without having uh, too many problems. So yeah, I, I've been ready. Look, I got my, my shirt on. Uh, <laughs> fucking Neil Diamond's 2008 so good. World so Tour good. t-shirt in case anybody thinks I'm not coming correct <laughs> with this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm wearing my which just arrived today the in flanagan we trust shirt which was just put out by Cotet 19 partnered with Kingcast. they're selling this and they're selling a kate siegel rules shirt that is a very honest shirt yes it is it's a it's a really comfortable shirt too so if anyone was looking for one uh the website is Cotet 19 so it's k-a-t-e-t-19.net and there's a store page and They've got a bunch of King-related shirts. And if anybody wants a Neil Diamond 2008 World Tour t-shirt, go fuck yourself. You had to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get into Neil Diamond here in a minute. Hey, he's okay. (laughs) I know where you live. (laughs) I got enough gas in my tank. And yet, like Jake was mentioning, we we don't talk about stuff a whole lot if we know we're going to cover it. And you know, to that end, just a few hours ago, Kara from the podcast Bad Girls Die First, which if you haven't listened to it, do check it out. The podcast Bad Girls Die First. Kara and Aaron are fantastic. Fabulous and it's podcast. a fabulous podcast. So go check it out. But Kara had messaged us and said, you know, one of y'all be in our discussion of Midnight Mass. I in all caps, I need to talk about all the things. <laughs> and messaged back and said, Yeah, I don't know how this is going to go because we really haven't talked about this. I know pretty well where Jake stands because you think? once you think I knew where Jake stood on the first minute of episode <laughs> one, I was pretty sure I knew where he'd stand on. Didn't the even rest. take a minute. Took me eight seconds, and I'm like, he wins again. <laughs> and haven't talked to Nick about it, so this is going to be interesting. So a big part of the reason we're going to talk about this show is and this has come up before is all three of us we all have varying interests in the various subgenres of horror you know jake has mentioned before he's not big into schlock nick is a fan admittedly of the cinematic equivalent of an episode of double dare of just you know <laughs> give me all the goop you know just <laughs> just pull the lever and just so all of us go in a little bit of a different direction in terms of the things we're partial to. But in terms of the Venn diagrams where they overlap for us, you know, the points in which all three of us converge, there's a few filmmakers who fall into that. And going into this podcast, we've mentioned before, the big ones were, at least in terms of folks we wanted to do spotlight episodes on, were Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead, and their producer Dave Lawson Jr., who make up Rustic Films, and Mike Flanagan. And Mike Flanagan was our very first spotlight episode. We did five of his movies for episode four. We did Ouija origin of evil for a bonus episode. And then we covered Oculus back as a bonus episode on episode 13, which I still think is one of our, our best ones. It's very long, but I, I really think it's one of our best longer than the movie. It is. <laughs> oh, we're good at that. Watch this be longer than the show. Midnight. Mass. <laughs> Before we get even farther, just since we mentioned Oculus, everybody find the mirror. Yes. yes, I did. All right. It's on the stage in the uh, rec center, in case anybody didn't find it. And we're disappointed that you didn't find it, but okay. <laughs> yep, the laser glass makes its requisite cameo. And but this is... Mike Flanagan is someone whose work means a lot to us. 
and this is a work that clearly means a lot to him, which you would kind of assume anyway, given how far back this has been teased. You know, Midnight Now showing up as the book at Hush, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit. To that end, at the Q&A, he mentioned that he's been working on this for 10 years. Mm. And he also mentioned that they pitched it as a TV series in 2014, and everybody passed. So it's been kicking around for a while for him, and he's he's mentioned on more than one occasion that this is his most personal work. I will say that on that note, so I assume back in 2014 he was pitching it to traditional networks, I'm assuming, like probably FX or he didn't. He didn't say, he just said everyone. Okay. I will say that I don't think there honestly has been a show better suited to the Netflix format than this. Agreed. Absolutely. And I include Haunting of Blind Manor and Haunting of Hill House in that. We'll probably get into that more later, but in terms of how this is structured, it's incredibly apt for this particular format. See, I, I would disagree with that ever so slightly. Just because this is the rare show uh, that I wish had been delivered in weekly doses. No, that's I'm not talking about binging. I'm, okay. I'm purely talking about the, the episode-to-episode structure. Oh, yeah, then of, absolutely you're right. Yeah. 100%. Like, this is not a show that would benefit really from commercial breaks. Nope. No. There are shows that benefit from that. It's been an interesting thing, you know, in pandemic viewing going back and you know filling time and watching old tv shows and watching it's an art of writing for commercial breaks and having to structure an episode so you basically have six to seven hooks at various points which is yep you got to come back in five minutes so there's absolutely an art to that but the netflix format and in premium channel formats allow for you know more flexibility with that and netflix seems to have even more leeway with time and whatnot And with the Netflix model, it does allow you the option of binging, which I, so here's a testament to how good this show is for me. I'm not generally a binger if I can help it. Like Jake just mentioned, I prefer having a chance to absorb something, you know, and and have that where you have a week to think on it. Ideally, if it, you know, if it's like a water cooler show and you have a chance to talk about it, like I know. Jake and Nick Lost was a big water cooler show for oh you my guys gosh, for every week. years. Oh, we, <laughs> used to, was... we used to sit and friggin' lunch and just talk about these theories. I mean, I, there was more than one Saturday I spent reading Lostpedia, just yep. doing that and arguing this, no, this, but yeah. then what about that? <laughs> yeah, that stuff I think can be immensely beneficial to shows. But you know, when you're presented with a bunch of stuff dumped in your lap, where it's all the episodes are made available. You know, typically speaking, even if I'm generally binge averse, if given the option, yeah, I'll probably go right into something. And the mark of a good show is I finish an episode and like, you know what? I really want to watch the next one. The mark of a great show is I finish an episode and having the option to watch every episode after it, I say, I'm going to go back and rewatch the episode I just watched rather than go on to the next one. Nice. Because I want to absorb as much of that as possible before I go to the next one. I want to soak in as much of this as I can. And that's what I did with Midnight Mass. Very nice. With the exception of episodes six and seven, which I watched back to back. It's kind of hard not to. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I even told you that. I said, 
you were thinking about going to bed before finishing. I'm like, look, if you watch six, you're watching seven. So figure that in the time. <laughs> and I would argue for me, six is probably the best episode of the series for me. And we might touch on why later. So to that end, so being big fans of Mike Flanagan's work, we've been excited for this for a while. It's been teased ever since Hush. It was teased in Gerald's game. He's talked about it. And it's finally here. And now that we've all seen it, I think it's appropriate for us, youth group style, to we'll just go around, each of us, one at a time, and go around the room, and let's each of us talk about how Mike Flanagan managed to make this series exactly, personally, for each of us. (laughs) (laughs) I'll start. (laughs) So, I have always had a fascination with like religion and afterlife stuff. You know, it's like, I even minored in world religions and philosophy. So, and you shelved books in that section at borders. I absolutely. <laughs> did. And this show just like touches on so much with that. Like it deals with the concept of faith. It deals with what we think happens after we pass and how we deal with that and what's, what we have to look forward to. And, Oh my God, it just touched on so many wonderful tidbits of philosophy for me that I absolutely adored it. On top of having some really fun creature effects. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, buddy. So, it's really hard for me to say anything remotely bad about this show. It hit all of my buttons, and I'm just so happy. I'll go real quick because I think Jake's going to have the most to say on this. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about this going in, but my impression from watching it were. Each of us are going to come out of this feeling to varying degrees. This was made for me. Yes. In my case, like we talked about earlier, Mike Flanagan's general sensibilities are something we are generally keen on, particularly his sense of humanity. His attention to characters has always been one of his strongest points. But on a more rudimentary level for me, that I've talked about on the podcast before, In terms of me wanting to watch something and actually be scared and wanting to find things that actually scare me and having a hard time finding things that actually scare me, way back, what did I mention as one of the rudimentary things that's an easy scare? Eyes glowing in the dark. Yep, absolutely. Second thing, what did I mention in previous episodes as far as being a thematic, you know, soft spot for me? Small town religious hypocrisy. Made for you. <laughs> now this isn't doing it like the same way something like Clovich Killer did, which is fantastic. But still, it's like yeah, on a broad strokes, it's like you are doing a theme that I'm a sucker for, and you are doing a kind of scare that, on a simple level, I think is generally underutilized, and you are doing it better than I think I've seen anyone ever do it. Oh yes, consistently. Like, every time he does that effect, it just didn't get old. It was like, yes! Oh, goddammit! Well, maybe not better than, you know, Garfield in the rough or whatever that special was I watched, which I talked about in episode one, which is where that fear comes from, because I saw that at five, and that panther scared the shit out of me. Kept making me think of Fright Night in this. Really? Particularly with Ali. I don't know why. He just looked exactly like somebody from Fright Night. It's uh, It's been ages since I've seen Fright Night, but it's... Yeah, like... The, We'll probably talk about it more later, but just the, the approach to it, where it's not, you know, ch- I don't know why the first touchdown I'm going to is Children of the Dam, but, you know, the Children of the Dam, like, bright glowing. No, 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 this is a much more rudimentary approach to it, and done so well. So, so well. All right, so we're doing this youth group style? Yes, Brother Jones Goldstein. Okay. <laughs> My name is Jacob, that uh, begins with J, 
like uh, a food stuff, which would be jelly bean. <laughs> Surely some people in youth groups will have flashbacks with that. Anyway, I, I have never felt more micro targeted for a piece of entertainment, horror or otherwise, than I did watching this show. Anyway, and I'm even talking about like I have had a solo Zoom concert with Trapper Shope that felt very micro targeted because it was, and <laughs> that felt less micro targeting me specifically. And I even picked the set list for that. It felt less micro targeting <laughs> than this show did, and I knew it. I'm not even joking. Five seconds in, mm-hmm. because it starts, and the very first thing you hear is Neil Diamond's "And the Grass Won't Pay No Mind," and now again. I'm wearing a fucking Neil Diamond tour shirt. So I didn't have to wait long before my brain kicked in. And I, I think I, I immediately messaged you guys like, holy fuck, it starts with Neil Diamond. And that's when Eric started planning the episode. Yeah. So here's how it was going in, which was me thinking <laughs> a few episodes ago, we did our reaction episode to Malignant. And at this point, when Midnight Mass was gearing up, we were prepping and trying to get our previous episode, the comics episode out, which was large. But I was thinking, I was like, oh, there's good odds coming out of Midnight Mass. We're going to need to do an episode. Then Jake messages us and said, holy shit, Neil Diamond. And I said, all right, well, I guess we're doing them a few minutes later. Holy shit, Harry Chapin. And I just opened up Photoshop. And said, I'm going to get started on the bonus episode artwork for this. <laughs> I swear, you said, oh, holy shit, it's Neil Diamond. I just wanted to be like, is it, you know, Sweet Caroline? And you've been like, no. I've been like, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I know where you live, motherfucker. <laughs> Oh, there's two Neil Diamond. In fact, I, I ranked the last notes I have, and I have a lot of notes on this, was ranking the three Neil Diamond sequences in this. Uh, the best one is from episode three. It's the Holly Holy. Yep. Followed by the opener within The Grass Won't Pay No Mind. And then third on the list is Suleiman, although the ominous first shot of the church in that sequence might be my fifth. I'm going to say might be my favorite a lot in this episode don't mm-hmm. buy it it's all my favorite <laughs> but anyway so let me talk a little bit about why i felt so micro targeted uh, you heard me mention it before both my parents are methodist ministers my grandfather was a methodist minister my great grandfather was a methodist minister and so forth honestly back to about 1600 when they came over from wales to be ministers in you know, in the New World is in Connecticut, in fact. Which there's no money in. So, like, if you had to be the great descendant of all these people, ministry, nothing. Inherited nothing. Anyway, so obviously this has been a big part of my life. I was raised in the church, even well into my, my 20s. And Mike Flanagan in the Q&A mentioned that he has a long history with the church as well, and he didn't really start questioning until college. And then one of the things he mentions is that all of the different characters in this kind of got assigned various beliefs he's had over his life and where he stood. And he had them talk to each other as a way of sort of working through this. And that describes a lot of my life. Um, I don't go to church now. It's not, it's hard to, <laughs> getting into belief, unbelief, agnostic, atheist, believer, whatever, it's, it's, it's not ever quite so simple. But again, I was raised in the church, and I'm not a person who is bitter about that. I'm not a person who feels wrong by the church, in part because my parents were both very progressive. They're, you know, hippies. They marched in the civil rights movement. My mom was at the Paris Peace Talks, for Christ's sakes. So this, I, in much of horror, 
religion is the bad guy. It's very much the villain. Or it's this sort of pure good that doesn't really have any character or anything. It's you know, this, really a this, weapon. Yeah. This weapon. Yeah. Like if you look at the Conjuring movies, you know, it comes down to faith and we believe so hard. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't mean anything more. And again, more often it's something even like recently St. Maud, where religion is not portrayed particularly well. So it's always it's a bit of a cudgel in almost every in one direction or the other. And what really I felt so profound with this is that even though, you know, what happens and all of this stuff is that it is not anti-religion. It's anti how we use religion and has a very good look at that. But it doesn't ever condemn the church overall, it felt like to me. No. And some people have tried to make that case, but I did not feel it. No. Yeah. In fact, I there was a one garbage ass review I read that was complaining about <laughs> You know, Mike Flanagan betrayed the horror community because this isn't nihilist enough and it you know doesn't make the church an outright bad guy. We expect that in horror. And then I went and found this particular reviewer's positive reviews of uh, the uh, Conjuring movies and realized, oh, yeah, they're full of shit. But anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So for me, for my life, religion has always it's been a part of it. It's sort of a background hum at times or a very foreground hum. And that's going to come up as we talk about certain things on this. But when your parents are ministers. And then something like this comes along that really just gets into a lot of what you feel about the church, you know, problems, positives, things about community. It, I mean, it just hit me where I lived. Like nothing we have talked about on this podcast before has hit me where I lived. And I'll throw this one other thing out there, just right up front. Part of what did it was Hamish Linkletter. Mm. He's amazing. He's amazing in it. But what he does that never, ever gets right in movies is he talks the way priests and ministers actually talk. Yes. yes. They get that so correct. There's just, there is a patter to the way they talk in front of people and not around people. And this gets that dead on. And nothing ever does. It is never right in films. They never get this. They're always too pious or not enough pie. You know, oh, I'm the cool priest or whatever. It's all bullshit. <laughs> this gets it perfect. And he just has it down so perfect. And boy, did my parents not like me explaining that they have a patter to them. <laughs> <laughs> and after we talked, they realized, okay, so yeah, maybe. What of it? <laughs> so, But it's so true. And almost nothing else in this was as strong as Hamish Linkletter's just patter. How right it was. Before we go further in, in case it's not self-explanatory, this is going to be full-blown spoilers. Not just for Midnight Mass, but probably for other Mike Flanagan projects, because some that touch on this. So, obviously, if you've gotten this far, we're going to tell you to go see it. So, full spoilers, so just to mention that. It's vampires! <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a land speech? <laughs> no, I swear to God, I, like, like episode one, I'm like, I'm getting some serious Salem Lot vibes here. <laughs> And that doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah, no. It, it it came up in the Q&A. He said the inspiration was in part Stephen King. Absolutely. And there were two stories specifically. And because we were watching after the first two episodes, he mentioned that the first one was Storm of the Century. Which oh, yeah. Might have just a little note. Like, I knew it. And then he <laughs> says there's another book he can mention, but he won't mention it because he didn't want to spoil anything in episode three. Episode three, of course, is where you first see the vampire. And my, my note just says, 
Yeah, he says there's another book he can mention, but I'm absolutely sure it's Salem's Lot. Yep. Uh, and he never says that, but of course it is. Yeah. There's uh, no uh, way it's uh, not. On the subject of Stephen King, one of the things I did today, and again, I am woefully underread on Stephen King. I can count on one hand the, the Stephen King books I've read. But I was curious about Riley's bookshelf, because so much of Riley's room, again, Riley is, Flanagan has mentioned in a piece he wrote, you know, how much Riley is in some ways a self-insert character. And to that effect, you know, you see his room, you see the X-Files poster. You know, and Scream. Poster, and, yeah, the Scream poster and all that. So it's like, all right. So with that in mind, there's the bookshelf he's got that you see in episode one, and it is right by his doorway. So I spent part of my day today, and knowing me, someone prob- has probably already isolated every book, but I was trying to pick out all the books. I fed a couple of them. I was looking at that same shelf. So the first three are old hardcovers that are so worn, I can't quite tell what they are. There's yeah. not enough distinguishing marks. The one after that is Midnight Club by Christopher Pike, which yep. is an upcoming Netflix series, which Mike Flanagan is the showrunner on and Yay! is directing... At least some of, I believe, if not all. After that is Season of Passage, also by Christopher Pike, which Mike Flanagan has also announced he's possibly going to be adapting. After that is The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon by Stephen King. After that's another Stephen King one I couldn't quite pick out. Then we've got Remember Me by Christopher Pike. Then we've got a Yellow Spine book by Christopher Pike where I couldn't make out the title. Then Salem's Lot. Then what I think was Wolves of the Cala. It was. And last one is Carrie. Did you catch the other... Stephen King book in that episode? I don't know if it's in episode one, but I know that it's, uh, it's Henry Thomas is reading Revival. One. Yeah, yeah, he's reading Revival. When you first see Henry Thomas, the first thing you see is him reading Revival, yep. which Mike Flanagan was going to do the adaption for and uh, didn't. I don't remember why. Uh, he mentioned that it's not happening now, but you know, never say never, basically, because he was attached to Gerald's game at one point, and then that fell apart, but it still ended up happening later, so without getting too far into Revival. Revival being one of the few <laughs> Stephen King books I have read. And I will say, I think Mike Flanagan is better suited to that material than many other directors I could think of. And You can say that with Mike Flanagan and a lot of Stephen King, just based on the history, you know, Gerald's Game, Dr. Sleep, etc. But I think with Revival's sensibilities, I think he's a very good fit. Also, Revival also features Neil Diamond. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. It it does. The, he goes on about how the very first song he ever learned on guitar was Cherry Cherry by Neil Diamond, which has stuck with me for several reasons. One, Neil Diamond. But two, it was the first song I ever learned on my guitar, too. Cherry Cherry's not that hard to play. It's a nice <laughs> connection. So, so, yeah. So, Neil Diamond all over this shit. And it's funny. I was the, When I watched episode one, again, I have a very rudimentary stephen king knowledge primarily from adaptations and even that i only seen like maybe a third maybe half of so as i was going through i was just making notes on stuff that are probably homages to other things you know i was like all right we've got you know bev keen is a you know sort of you know mother carmody sort of s character in some ways you know the whole mysterious you know interloper into small town i was like all right that feels you know very much like leland gaunt needful things storm of the century comes up some salem's lottie bits and then we got to the last shot of episode one. I was like, well, that's Pet Cemetery, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in regards to that, the last shot of episode one, all those cats were stuffed animals. And apparently <laughs> they would float away between takes. Oh, no. <laughs> so they had to get them of all these floating, supposedly dead cats in the water. 
<laughs> he mentioned that during the the Q and A again, and I thought that was that image was perfect. <laughs> That's fabulous. Because this show is rough on animals. Yes, between the cats on the beach and the dog. Oh, the oh, the poor dog. And we'll get to the dog. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things before we get too far into the the show and the series itself. One of the things they talked about, and it'll come up when we talk a little bit about the end of episode six, is that this is one of the first TV productions to go into production during COVID. Yep. They had to follow full protocols during the entire shoot. Yeah, they had to learn sort of on the fly how to do that and figure out how to have all these. Because again, a lot of this is people singing in church, Yep, which is Mm -hmm. not great. But if you looked through the credits... There was a COVID manager and a COVID administrator on this. Hmm. So I'm just going to read them out. I'm going to steal Nick's bit from the production credits here. (laughs) The COVID manager was Jenna Irvine. The health and safety supervisor was Janelle Ott. The licensed practical nurse, uh, nurses, nurses, nurse I, Courtney Reyes (laughs) and Aaron Mann. The registered nurse was He Jin So. And the COVID administrator was Lena Cristiano. And normally we wouldn't bring that kind of stuff up, but I think because of this and you know the times we're in it felt like let's give him a shout out because that stuff's important no that's great it's hard work clearly a good job and i can't imagine having to film this and figure this out you know you're already doing something that's not so easy and then you have this on top of it so i mean kudos to all of those folks and uh, everybody who worked on this really it's interesting i went back to Right after finishing it, I went back to watch Hush because I wanted to see the nods to Midnight Mass there. And one of the first things I look at is when the book is set down early on and tried to read the blurb on the back. And one of the things the blurb on the back mentions is the population of Crockett Island. And it says the 512 souls on Crockett Island. And I was thinking, it's like, that's a lot more than the 127 we get in the actual show. <laughs> and then find out later that it was due to, like you mentioned, there were the COVID protocols. And it's like, all right, we can't have that many people on set. So that's when the oil spill plot ended up being written in as an excuse to whittle down the population. It works explain great. why it was so sparse. Yeah. And it ends up being one of those things where I, I honestly think the show benefits from it. And it's great with like the smaller island population. You just, it, it's so much more personal with each character. You, you just... It's hard not to connect to almost everyone you see um, on the island. It's great. It's well yeah. done. Very well done. Pretty easy to not connect to Bev, but other than that. <laughs> oh, Bev is the worst. So related to that, did anyone else go back to Hush? No, not for this. So I did real quick, just because I wanted to see the bits, and I was like, all right, all right, it's been a while since I watched Hush, since back when we did episode four last year. So, it's, But I remember there were bits of... Maddie writing something and it was like well it couldn't have been Midnight Mass because that's the book that's returned to her in the beginning right and is returned to her by Samantha Sloyan uh, hopefully I'm getting I'm pronouncing the last name right I haven't seen interviews with her who, who returns the book and who plays Bev Keen in this show so going back and watching Hush I freeze framed on the first bit after Samantha's the neighbor leaves and Maddie's sitting there writing and what she has is she has several screens up of various endings to a novel she's working on called Sweetwater, which is a sequel to Midnight Mass. And I won't read all of them, but the first one we see, I'm going to read this one real quick, which is she stared at him, unblinking, unfeeling. What was left of her face was utterly expressionless. But like the altar boys at St. Patrick's, her eyes were telling a story. They sparkled in the darkness. 
and not just because there were tiny pieces of glass embedded in her irises. You're right to be angry, those eyes seemed to say. If there was a god, he'd have loved me too much to take my life just to teach you a lesson. If there were heaven, I should be there. But here I am, with you, in hell. Her bulging, smiling eyes peered at him in the near darkness, and he felt he could feel her gaze no matter how he... And I should mention, the sentence I left off above that, what I just read is there's a sentence that you only see the back half of, and that sentence is, Eyes sparkled red, blue, and yellow with phantom siren light. Holy crap. So, the bits of sweet water that we see, and there's other bits too uh, that are also playing on Riley and Aaron stuff that we later see it in Midnight Mass. And there's also, Maddie has her internal monologue with herself at that point saying, you know, can't do this, can't do this. And one of them is can't kill Aaron. People will be pissed if you kill Aaron and talking about the various characters. So I thought that was interesting, but it raises a question. So if we assume that canonically the Midnight Mass we see is a, you know, slamming together Sweetwater and the Midnight Mass novel that Maddie wrote, it's like, all right, well, that makes Aaron a Maddie insert character, both being played by Kate Siegel. Okay, that makes sense. But then you have Bev Keen, played by Samantha Sloyan, who plays the neighbors. What did Maddie think of her neighbor? I thought they had a great relationship, but apparently not. That's funny. Well, you know, Bev, a lot of about Bev was that she presented as a nice person to be not really nice but she you know the 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 model of (laughs) goodness and everybody just kind of rolled their eyes but treated her like that which only empowered her oh my god right but that's how that works with those folks yes and and look you have to smack them down into their place every time or they only get stronger i'm not gonna (laughs) name names but i've known plenty of people in churches like that in fact Mm -hmm. so when i was younger in uh high school I went on religious weekend. It's called Emmaus. It's the young people's version of Trace Diaz, which is the three days movement, which isn't super relevant to probably a lot of people reading this. But these are progressive sort of religious weekends, not, you know, going and drinking Kool-Aid and shit. And I played plenty of those jokes when we went to it, let me tell you. But they're about kind of understanding your faith and living with that and also living with yourself, but not in any kind of like overt way. It's more about community and understanding the community aspect of church. Anyway, you get five talks on them. And after the one I was on, I was on team for another one. I was a cookie, which meant I cooked. And, (laughs) but I did get to go to the five talks that were given. And the fifth one is about overt piety. And it was, it was given by a, a woman named Kaylee who actually ended up being my brother's senior prom date which is probably something he wouldn't want me to talk about, but he was going to come on and then he bailed. So fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) And what she talked about was something that has always, always stuck with me, which is the concept of a Holy Joe. It's the term she used. And it's just, it's the kind of people who want you to see how pious and how faithful they are and how they're so much, you know, they're, they're the model, but they're also, it's so outward and none of it, breaches none of it nope. is inward it's complete shell it, right. it's such bullshit mm-hmm. and so the second i met bev in this i just flashed back to this talk into the, the the holy joe idea and it's just it's one of the more fundamental things but it's another thing that flanagan gets right 
yep. about churches because she's not I mean she's she ends up certainly very villainous and she's really kind of villainous throughout but she's also I would never call her evil. I it's would more hubris and just this this idea of being holier than thou. She is she is the example in this of the church gone completely wrong. All these ideas Absolutely. gone completely wrong. But also, what do you uh, think about her actions from episode two? What killing the dog? Yes. Well, I think it's it's she flat out poisoned that goddamn thing. Yeah, she does. It's funny because the, <laughs> it's the, like I got really upset by it because I'm like, oh shit! You know, by this point, you're starting the feeling that something's going on. There's something like uh, nefarious building on the island. There's something that has has arrived and it is doing things. And this is true. But it's misleading in the fact that you think maybe, just maybe, it already has its claws in her. I legit thought for a little bit that she was coerced, forced, kind of driven into doing this. Like she was tasked with removing this dog because it was a threat to the situation. But the more it progresses, you realize that no, she's just a goddamn asshole who <laughs> this guy's dog. No, like, I like hate I said. her so much. She wasn't pushed into that by the vampire, but by the other evil entity on the library on the island. Because remember, we saw the Oculus mirror. <laughs> that Oculus mirror hated dogs, man. Hated dogs. Not giving her a pass, but that's appropriate. Yeah, the the lesser glass fed on dogs, and in this uh... first episode, yeah, we have our you know, mysterious angel being just going ham on cats. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, Mike Flanagan clearly had some bad experiences with pets growing up. <laughs> but it's funny, watching that the first time, I didn't catch the little quick bit where you see her dress giving the dog a hot dog. Yep. I, I, I missed that the first time through. Yeah. So I thought that who poisoned the dog was going to be slightly more of a mystery because there was reason to believe that it could be Lisa. And so I didn't realize that until the second time through that, nope, they, they straight up show bev dropping that yep. hot dog and killing that dog yeah no it's very clearly her and it also makes me wonder if she was and it it's not clear to me and i keep coming back to this and i, I there's not a was she poisoning paul no because when he dies he dies like he had just ingested this poison and they show her returning that poison several times after the dog incident and it made me wonder if she killed him you see her giving him food you got to eat up you got to eat up you have to eat this now and it's after that that it happens. And no, he was, I, it, there's he no was real reason to believe it. it, but I kept thinking that going in that that was going to be the story. But he just carks over. Does he just cark over because, you know, from withdrawal? But he dies in the same way as everybody who takes that poison. Did he kill himself? I don't think so. I think he had been ingesting. He had ingested so much of the sacrament, if we will, <laughs> that he had become fully uh like you've gone from full 80s dementia to like 20 year old you know 30 well i guess that's 35 40 year old and i just feel that it had so enveloped his body that him dying was a turning point was when it was finally like no we're in control now we've hit a critical mass and so it, yeah. and that certainly makes sense it's the fact that he dies in the exact same fashion yeah that made it, me wonder about it yeah and that, that he keeps showing her returning that poison yeah, I no, I can see that element being there. The reason I would question it is by the time 
most of that is underway. Like him, you know, really having the adverse reactions from what I remember, which before we knew the nature of what was going on, you know, when it was mysterious as far as what Father Pruitt's or Father Hill at that point, what his intentions were and what was in the trunk and whatnot. So when you're still in episode two, I kept referring to that, the stomach pains in my notes as the BLs of bubble guts. Because <laughs> he just has these gurgles and just, oh. But when those predominantly start coming in is in episode three, which is the same one where he dies. And at that point, she sees the photo of the young him at the very beginning of episode three. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'd have to check the timeline on it again. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I unless his poisoning was still far so far underway, and what they showed us of the 1080, I don't know if it would have like operated on kind of like that, even if it was administered gradually, that it would have yeah. operated that way. But like before that, like he passes out in the church, and he's like having the, these consistent hunger pains. Like it, it's very much a transformation. It feel, felt like to me. That's what it feels like they're going for. It's just again. It's I keep coming back to the fact that he dies the same way that everybody does with this poison yeah. that made me wonder about it. So and it doesn't I mean, if it is or isn't, I watched this a couple of times. I don't have a strong case to think she was other than, you know, she's a pretty bad person. So I said she's not evil. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think you're wrong. That would be pretty <laughs> evil. And, you know, her later on her wanting control would be the the reason that I would think that that was a possibility. But yeah, so yeah, just, but she's an awful, well, she's a, she's a very good character in the show. She's an awful person. She's a Holy Joe through and through and everybody just kind of rolls their eyes at it and lets her get away with it. And like you said, that's what most people do with that. Precisely what leads to their own doom. Yep. And her hubris in the end is what dooms everybody. Oh yeah. Full on pride to the grave. (laughs) <laughs> and i i just i i think so many of the people in this are strong characters every single know? one yeah yeah maybe everybody, maybe, everybody. maybe, yep. maybe a bit less so with the kids but then again i feel almost like that's being just true to kids <laughs> it's just, they're just off doing their thing you know <laughs> I, it's funny because early on i thought this was going to be kid centric with episode one, absolutely. You know, you, you get that. We talked about the opening sequence. We're not the opening sequence, but once the four years later sequence to Suleiman from Neil Diamond, you know, it's it mostly focuses on the kids. It shows you, you know, all the houses and the state of the island. But you start with those kids and then go into the upwards and well, I mean, they see the vampire. But it felt like that's where it was going to go. And then it kind of drifts away from them gradually. After that episode, not even that gradually, you know, barely see Uker other than yep. standing around looking confused in church, <laughs> yep. I, which is fine. I, you know, uh, Uker has a big moment at the end, but yeah, you know, it, 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 yeah, he's basically waiting for his moment for most of it. I, I will say this, just throwing it out there to, to change it a little bit here. The first episode of this is one of the strongest first episodes I can remember of just about anything top to bottom in terms of introducing characters, introducing the story, setting the tone, setting the feel. The opening sequence with Riley and the the accident, you know, cutting to court with Carla Gugino giving him the sentence and the, Which I was so glad when I heard her voice. Because it's 
I, that was one of the things that bummed me out going into the show. <laughs> I was like, oh, why can't, why can't we have Carla Gugino again? And we did! Because she's phenomenal. And Gerald's Game is one of those roles she had where finally it felt like people took notice of how amazing she is. Yeah. And you know, she's been wonderful in roles before, but she got a, a good amount of attention for that. And then, you know, Flanagan keeps working with the same people over and over. So it was like, oh, I love please. that about him. Just, I love how he reuses No, please keep working with Carla Gugino. So I was so glad we got the voice cameo. That made me so happy. And then, you know, even even right up front, you get the, the Flanagan camera tilt in the bed scene. Yeah, you know, right that before, before was you. so perfect. But yeah, because he does the tilt, but like he gets in the bed and the camera tilts. And you get the full 90 degree angle and then you cut to what he sees, which is, you know, he has just recently uh, murdered a woman through manslaughter in a car accident. And her visage, like the, the image of her dead body just haunts him and it was so chilling and upsetting which made what mike did next so much worse because later in that episode four years later he's home he's with his family you know he's gonna live on the island again when he gets acclimated and kind of figure out what to do with his life he goes in his room lays down and the second that camera starts tilting again, I'm like, oh, God damn it, we're still here. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's like, and <laughs> and lo and behold, the minute, you know, he gets the full 90 degree angle, there she is again. It's like this specter has just been haunting him for years. Just the pain and anguish and guilt of what he has done. He has not escaped. And it's so brilliantly executed that it just chilled me to the core the second that camera went one degree in a direction. I was like, oh, no! <laughs> My favorite time you see her, and, and again, you know, the, the flashing lights and the, the glass, the, when you see her in the, the Holly Holy montage, it cuts to him, and you see him looking at her as the song builds to its, you know, first crescendo, and it's you sing, 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 and then and you see her as the camera kind of slowly pans towards her. And I, I, Look, I watched that whole montage 15 times, but I just think that's one of the most perfect moments in anything Flanagan's done for me. Another one similar to that is in episode one when the Saturday morning by Harry Chapin begins to play. Yep. So, like, first of all, and I talked a lot about Neil Diamond, Harry Chapin's even more important in my life musically. So for him to also be in this, I, I mean, I... I had a moment, man, watching these the first time. Like, I have never felt more of a mashup of my interests in life than Harry Chapin playing in a Mike Flanagan thing since, like, the Boston's <laughs> were on The Simpsons. What's Harry Chapin most known for again? Uh, Cats in the Cradle. That's it. That's it. That's a good one. They're all good ones. Sure. <laughs> but Saturday Morning is one of my favorites, and it's on the Greatest Stories live album. It's a live version that plays in this. There isn't a recorded version from him. Like, there's not an album version. And it's a beautiful song, and you've you probably both heard it for the first time, this, and you can attest to that. Mm-hmm. But it's that Greatest Stories live album, much like Neil Diamond, is something that I get from my father. You know, he played a lot of Neil Diamond and Harry Chapin when we were growing up, but that particular album is one of the cornerstone touchstone albums of my life. Like that is a desert Island album for me. So for that song to be in this and to, and the first strains you hear of it are uh, Riley walking down the street away from Aaron as kind of 
you know, the first time they've really talked and it's just getting late in the evening. And it's to my mind, it's maybe the most perfect shot in the series. And to have the strains of this incredible song playing over that and then the, the montage that follows that. I mean, it, it, obviously it was it was always going to, but it just knocked my socks completely off the first time I saw it and the second time I saw it and the third time I saw it and so forth. 12th was great. 13th was great. 14th it was underwhelming. 15th it was right back to great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's just one of those things. It, like we talked again about being micro-targeted by this particular program. And program, yeah, I'm not middle-aged. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of shots in this that just feel incredible. So many. That I would pause and just kind of look at and bask. And I mentioned that first ominous shot of the church during the Suleiman sequence. But, you know, the, the first time you see the cats, Riley out in the storm when the lightning flashes. and, and Oh, great shot. Yeah. He looks back. The vampire, when you first see him and he's wearing the uh, the robes, which are called something. I love that <laughs> so much. The uh, vestments is what I kept saying. But yeah. I, I think there's a chausables. Is Chausable. Yeah. When he's wearing the, the chausable. And I said, Jake and I were both raised Methodist. So I don't yeah, know. I learned a lot of new stuff. Ordinary time, chausable. I didn't know any of this. Roman Catholic here. <laughs> like the Stations of the Cross bit, it would show up in episode three. I had heard of the Stations of the Cross. Yes. But yes. I'd never actually seen them in practice. I, I've been yep. in Catholic churches a couple times. But I'd never been for like I think it was just for funerals. I'd never been for you know like a mass or something like that. So seeing them, I was like, oh, that's what the <laughs> cross are. So. You actually have to earn communion. You gotta like take a course and you know go through the process and, and go through the rites of communion. And part of that was going from going through the stations, going to each station and doing the prayers for the stations. My, my church they had stations at every stained glass window. So you could go go window to window and see the whole story of like the crucifixion. But yeah, stations were huge in the Catholic Church. Yeah. I want to come back to that cat scene you were talking about with them all along the beach. Did anybody time it? I didn't. It was, it was a long single take and I loved it. No, because there's so <laughs> many long takes in this. Yeah. Many, oh, many, many, many oh, long so takes. Many. Which I love. Yep. Which, which touches on... Something that's been a criticism of the show that that I'll respond to in just a second. Real quick, while we're talking about cats, I just want to throw out there that the ginger cat in episode one that you know we see get picked up is the best animal actor since the dog in the thing. Um, <laughs> I'm sure this shot was aided by CG, but it's just the rhythm of that shot with the cat, the way it stops, one paws up, looks at, looks around, looks. Oh, it's like the the husky in the thing <laughs> doing that perfect. That's one of my favorite horror sequences ever. Is is the dog's entrance into the kennel in the thing? So, just a funny thing I saw. Okay, I was like, oh, great acting by that cat. <laughs> but on the subject of of the long takes, something that kind of plays into it is so, folks who haven't enjoyed the show so much, one of the things that's come up and has been a Can joke we call them the, heretics. I'm gonna call them heretics. <laughs> Blasphemers. You know, it, hey, you know, different, you know, you like what you like and, and all that. But no, I, no. I know Jake's going to tell you you're wrong, but <laughs> um, he has his opinion. Unbelievers. <laughs> I'm going with heretics. Heretics feels heretics. Right okay. <laughs> but one of them and, and even something, a point that's been brought up, you know, by folks who really enjoyed the show and in jest is the amount of monologues in the show. And some folks have been like, oh, you know, I didn't key in on that. And that, again, like what you like. For me, and I think this is 
come up on the pod before, and I know Jake's kind of the same way, that we're suckers for play adaptations. Yes. So, so you give me something that's two people in a room for 90 minutes, and I'm good. Sold. Like the, the, the Sunset Limited, the Cormac McCarthy thing that they did for HBO, fine, I watch that all goddamn day. Resolution. Mousetrap. Big Kahuna. Yeah. Oh, and, I love Big Kahuna. <laughs> yes, Jake and I, are, I think, are the only Big Kahuna fans on the East Coast. But I'm a big fan of Kiss Me Goodbye. Had <laughs> a gabbler. But I have a soft spot for if you give good actors, good material, and long takes, I'm in. And yep. it's, so I understand why that didn't work for some folks, but I absolutely adored it. Show about sermons. People give sermons. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Yeah, now, obviously, all kidding aside, like what you like, there are a lot of long speaking sequences in this. But the thing about them is that they're all great. Yes. So suck it up. Yeah, I tried to be nice that whole thing. And it just <laughs> by the end of it was like, nope, you're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, like your opinion so, is very, very. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Another fish called Wanda. Right? I Wendy. I Wanda. <laughs> it, it's funny you mention that because, well, I'll get to my favorite scene in the entire show in, in a second. I mentioned the sermons. There are a number of, well, there are more homilies in this than I guess actual sermons, but they're all very interesting and they're all serving different purposes but probably my favorite is the first one it's the the why it's the palm sunday one the why not every sunday sermon and the way it builds and the way he but what i like best about it is he lays out the entire plan in the sermon he tells you in episode one what he's going to do and pretty much how he's going to do it and why mm-hmm. like I, i'm going to read you a little bit it's again, this is in the Why Not Every Sunday sermon. Because of where this is all actually heading, which is Easter, rebirth, resurrection, eternal life, life that rises again, even out of blackness, love rises again, even out of sin. And this island, it will rise again, even out of disaster, rebirth, restoration, eternal life. As Psalm 60 tells us, in the darkness, in the worst of it, in the absence of life and hope, we sing it. And then he finished it with the same hand that dealt you hardship will make you whole. And I'm like, hey, Paul, look you being up front with everybody about what you're about to do. (laughs) Good on you, buddy. Death is a reoccurring and constant theme in this show. I mean, like Paul's primary motivations in life has been the wanting to understand, if not also conquer death to some degree. You know, he got into the interest of becoming a priest when his sister passed. and he is clearly, I feel, a man of faith and a good man, but his viewpoints throughout this entire thing are clearly skewed by his desire to conquer death. Like, if he wasn't so obsessed with the notion of this thing has granted me youth, potentially eternal youth, he can only see that as a blessing because of how much death has terrified him his life. And so this is a gift, and a gift to me from this thing. Therefore, it must be good. And now I will bring that to the other people I love. And that, I thought, was really well done. Because, honestly, the best villains are almost always the ones who think they're the heroes. And then you find out he did it all for the nookie. (laughs) (laughs) But this theme isn't just with father paul either i mean my one of my favorite scenes maybe my favorite scene 
has to be when Aaron and Riley are having their discussion about what happens when you die. And he's talking about how he's basically an atheist. So he goes through the steps of what happens on a physical level when you pass. But he still takes solace in this, in that this will be an end to the pain he has for the mistakes he's made. And also, he will become of use in his body to the earth and to all the things that feed upon it. And he takes comfort in that, that right now he feels so low that he still at least has his passing to look forward to on some level. And then she goes on to talk about, you know, how what what is waiting for her and how she will continue on afterward. And what's glorious about this, I'm just going to come right out and talk about the end of episode five at this point. I was floored that Riley did not make it to the last episode. You know, it's like he's so clearly painted as this like protagonist and like you're the Riley character and you're going to follow him through to the end. And even if he's not the ultimate hero, he's going to at least be the witness. And he's not. He doesn't make it that far, but he still satisfies his understandings of death and what he's going to get from it while still leaving it open to maybe she's right. It could go either way in that moment, very clearly. Because while his body is not going to be around anymore, because he has been turned by this point, and his body ignites and fully ashes out, he is being of use, and he is giving back, and he is going to be useful in what he is telling her and what he's giving her before he goes. And then he has that moment in his mind, or on the next plane, however you want to think of it, where he gets to have either forgiveness from the spirit of the woman that he took or the single best dream he could ever have before he moves on. Mm. And I was bawling my eyes out by the end of this. I was just a goddamn mess of tears watching this. And it was sheer perfection. And those two scenes together... I think had the single greatest impact for me in, in this in this series. Talking about the end of five, I had intended to watch five, six, and seven all in one go, and then I watched five, and I'm like, "Well, I'll see you tomorrow, six and seven. I'll be in my bed crying." And had to get up and walk around. <laughs> and I, and I tell you, like, there's a lot to talk about with, with five, and, and and but the way that scene, it you know it's coming. Yep, you know it's coming. The second they get in that rowboat, you're like, "Ah, fart knocker." And <laughs> which brings up another question about his prophetic dreams yes. and what that means. But so the way that that shot is, he's talking and then the sun comes up and he sees it. And then he sees her, his victim and takes his hand. And then there's that sharp cut to the fire and her yes, screaming. Yes. And oh then my God. It's so screaming over the credits. Yes. As the credits roll. Oh, was I was obliterated. Yep. By I got that. chills by it right now just thinking about it. Just it's so well cut and shot and I was just I I felt like Mike Flanagan had come up and kicked me directly in the throat at that particular moment. Oh my god. Sheer perfection. When I watched episode 4 and got to the end of episode 4 with the angel, you know, leaping at the camera. Yep. My reaction was 
Yay! And not because I disliked Riley. Quite the opposite. Same. Uh, Riley was great and a great performance. But it was like, oh, great swerve. And it again throws a lot of legitimate questions in. Did not see that coming. Yeah. So then there's the reveal that Riley is, well, quote unquote, alive again. And, and it was like, uh, all right, I know this is going to be good because if nothing else, it's going to lead to an extended conversation in the rec center again. And because all of those are fantastic and yes. it's the best one. So I was like, yes, I'm Ooh. fine with this. I'm going to disagree with you on that. Oh, the rec center <laughs> chat specifically? Oh, that was That being the best one. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that next. Okay, we'll talk about that in a bit. And then you get to the end of five. And, and so, it was, so there was an element of, yay, again, at the end of five, for, again, taking it and, and putting things where you've set up a protagonist and now taking them off the chessboard. And I will say that my reaction to that final scene in episode five was absolutely shattered yes for a couple minutes but unfortunately that day i had been editing the podcast earlier that day oh no Uh and there was a particular (laughs) reference we made in the podcast that it was impossible (laughs) to shake in watching this scene because when we watch this scene of them going out (laughs) onto the ocean and there's the sequence of Aaron saying, "So, if we, 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 you gotta tell me, Riley, why'd you, why'd you bring me out here?" And I know all I can hear is, "Aaron, I, 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 uh, I got something to say. It's better to burn out than to fade away." They're gonna be all I want. So he's going up like Johnny Storm, and all I can hear is the Kurgan, "Burn out and fade away." <laughs> So it was shattering, but it was also kind of funny. Because we all remember, you know, that iconic scene in the church in Highlander. What do you think happens when we die, Kurgan? Speaking for myself, Highlander. Well, as the blade cleaves through my C3 and C4 vertebrae. So, okay, in the interest of full disclosure. I had a similar reaction to that the second time I saw it because I had, again, also been listening and editing to our podcast and uh, had been thinking about a couple of jokes we made. And when he's sitting there at the very end, all I could hear in my head the second time was, because I'm sad, baby. So why don't I burn myself to bits? (laughs) I was about to say, so our last three episodes, if you haven't listened, we have referenced the evil midnight bomber, what bombs at midnight. Three episodes in a row. This show has midnight in the title. So I was had notes about how far do we get before someone references <laughs> the evil midnight mass or what mass is at midnight. That's perfect. So he says to me, he says to me, bring Miss Mouse. You say, can you bring Miss Mouse back to life? I said, yeah, baby, yeah. <laughs> One of these days, sunrise, boom! <laughs> Resurrection's a good mob book, baby. <laughs> so yeah, and the other bit about episode five that that I was stuck with is there's that bit. Uh, God, with this show, did I hate the autoplay function that Netflix has, where it's the you know, yes. yeah, it cuts a little too. Like, soon. No, just let me sit. And again, because I would go right back to the start of an episode. 
So I'd have to fumble out of the next episode, go back to the menu and restart. But it was one of those episode five, particularly it was like, just let me play out. I just want to sit in that moment of just the audio where they go to all that detail, you know, of her reactions and whatnot. And just, you know, the, the Foley effects and just sit in that and just soak it in. Cause again, it's shattering. And I was also terrified that right. As we got to the end, you just hear her say, why am I hungry for hot dogs? Or something? <laughs> you know, just, like they'd sneak in some Easter egg at the end of the, at the end of the end credits. So kind of an interesting thing and something I sort of appreciated about it is you talk about, you know, the autoplay function. Episode six begins in silence with her on the boat. No music or anything. It's it's her in the boat floating after that. But just a little detail that I appreciated after watching Blade is that the remnants of his clothes are still there. They're singed. Yes. yes. But his clothes <laughs> yes. did not disintegrate when he burned up. They nope. got burned, you know, like the, pretty his badly. Boots are still there. The boots are still yeah. there. And I just thank you for that, Mike. Thankfully, didn't burn a hole in the boat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This had an unintended side effect. Blah 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 blah. blah. I w- I've always been fascinated by how many. How I put this, like vampire half feet survive in these encounters, you know, because it's like you know, it's not like like a beam of sunlight hits their head and they just fucking explode. It's like the the sun is literally burning and igniting the parts it hits. So, like, are his toes still just kind of, like, chilling in those boots? You know, just hanging out? <laughs> That's what you know, smells like hot dogs. You know, at, you know <laughs> when, when all the vampires get it, or they're just, like, a, like they're all gone. They spun, you know, they got nothing left but these, like, half feet. You know, just chilling out. <laughs> well, he could have come back then at that point. It just, exactly. It'd take a few months, just leave his feet out. And <laughs> yeah, so, you know, um, we're getting towards ultimate spoilers here is you know towards the end you know there are a fair number of vampires everybody dies yeah, there's a fair <laughs> number of vampires and they're all like shit we have nowhere to go i expected there to be like one vampire like hiding behind a tree like slowly kind of like following the shadow around trying to like, <laughs> like, like, like maybe just maybe come on baby <laughs> I was expecting someone to you know, get one of the boats, like the the canoes or something, just flip it over, and you just see this yes! like canoe turtling around <laughs> the island of like like, like someone creeping gear. behind a bush. <laughs> or yeah, Metal Gear is better. Yes, like the cardboard box in Metal yeah, Gear. Yeah, these are not the brightest survivalist vampires. Lisa getting back to the island. Huh? What was that noise? Here the rum. <laughs> like you know, they're, they're talking like they're trying to prevent the apocalypse, burning all the boats. Not even one can get off. They're, clearly, one could get off because these people don't know how to survive in the wild (laughs) like as soon as everything was on fire that rec center went up you know what i would have been in a hole six feet down with a bunch (laughs) of dirt on top of me so i want to circle back because you mentioned the aa scenes Mm -hmm. which i think are if not the best amongst the best well i will say this is your favorite scene one of the aa scenes because you mentioned absolutely it's incredibly well done the first one i just i think the first aa scene is the best scene in the show. And I'll tell you why. Fun fact about it. When Hamish auditioned, Kate Siegel read with him. And the audition scene was the AA, episode 2 AA scene. Okay. That's just a fun fact. I thought that was neat. Oh, yeah. So, I I love the way this is shot right up front. 
you know, with all the negative speed, you know, they're always in the, the lower corner or the, you know, there's so the much overhead, space, the yeah, overhead shot. Just the reverse. Yeah. All of them are just incredibly, impeccably, effectively shot. Every every scene in that. Yeah. Michael Feminari is the man. <laughs> and yeah. Incredible work. And, you know, because it's just two guys sitting there staring at each other. And that that's not the easiest to make visually rich and interesting, you know, and. Look, I've been in a lot of fellowship halls and rec center type places, man, and all them checkered ass floors, just not that visually interesting. Well, I love how like it like, would be really easy for someone just to do a full center shot head here, full center shot head there, but he really does this wonderful framing of like them like kind of like off to the corner almost. It's and it changes based on the mood. Oh my god, the man's a genius. So the reason I love this so much is because it feels like this is where Flanagan lays out both his ethos and the show's ethos very strongly. I mean, that there's a lot to be said for the conversation and, you know, the discussion of AA and the methods and things like that, because recovery is a big part of why Flanagan made this and what this is about. But they talk about, Riley very specifically says, alcohol isn't good or bad, but the version of me that came out when I had enough to drink, he was bad. And it's said about alcohol, but I think it directly applies to religion in the show the church and faith and i think they're they're two sides of the same coin in midnight mass when he's talking about alcohol he's very much talking about alcohol but he's Mm -hmm. also talking about faith it's not good or bad on its own it's what we do with it and how we use it yes and he very much shows from that you know from the in the whole show he shows the good side of this and the bad side of this you get the good side with with mildred or uh, Henry Thomas and I don't know why I keep blanking on the character names. I should write this shit. Down, I'm just glad I, you didn't call this. It, I this might be the first time. The <laughs> first time calling him Elliot. We've talked about Henry Thomas a lot on this podcast. This might be the first time he was not introduced by Jake as Elliot from ET. <laughs> in fact, in Ouija or Genevieve, I'm pretty sure he is Father Elliot from ET. <laughs> Like went out of your way to avoid calling him by his actual character name. So good job. I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to do that this time <laughs> because this is a man who put on Neil Diamond's Twelve Greatest Hits, skipped three <laughs> songs in to Holly Holy, and I was just like, "Motherfucker, you get to be Henry Thomas for an episode." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I think you know they're obviously good, but even within that. It lays out what this show is about. He says it, and he says it on the the two sides of the same coin and about how we use it and how we don't, how we treat faith, how we treat, you know, booze and what this does to us and who we are as people. And it wasn't my favorite scene the first time through. It became my favorite scene the second time through. Once I knew what was going to happen, once I knew it was coming up, this show is incredibly rewarding to rewatch. And this scene is why, and it became after that my favorite scene in the show for what it accomplishes, for how it's shot, for again, this is where it really hit me how much Hamish Linkletter had the patter of ministers down and how they talk and how they interact on on an actual level, not a you know the movie level. There's one other thing with it: Father Paul is wearing blue jeans in it, not particularly unusual. But it made me think of something that I have thought, my, not my entire life, but for years as a kid, I thought, which is there's another Neil Diamond song, which is Forever in Blue Jeans, which as a kid, I always thought he was singing For Reverend Blue Jeans. 
Because every minister, <laughs> every minister I knew wore jeans all the time. So this made perfect sense to my little kid brain. You know, they, everybody thinks they wear robes around, and no, it's all jeans and t-shirts like everybody else. And I always thought that that's what he was kind of singing about. And it just when I'm looking at him, and he's in this, just these very casual, friggin', you know, wide stance, sitting there in these blue jeans. I kept hearing that song in my head and thinking. I wonder, I wonder if Mike Flanagan also misheard that as a kid when he was listening to Neil Diamond. And here we are. So, yeah. So, uh, for completely extraneous, stupid me reasons, but also I just, I think it's the pivotal scene in the show where it sets up what the show is about. This is where Mike Flanagan telling us, like, look, here's the central conflict and let's go. Yeah, it's, it's one of the big mission statement scenes. Yeah. My soft spot tends to fall you know when stuff comes up at like you know the the emotional apex or when an actor tends to cut loose which is why I kind of favor the AA scenes more and more as they go and things keep escalating but my favorite scene in the show is tied into that and it's also tied in with what you just mentioned which is the rewatchability of it what i probably admire most about the show and like Jake said at the onset you're going to hear favorite toss about you know all of us probably coming out of this with like 12 favorite things about this <laughs> But what I have in my note was what I admire most about the show is its precision in terms of series that are designed to be rewatchable or layered so often have plot points that are jarringly peculiar the first go around. And then it's when the second go around that they make sense. This show doesn't really have that. Now, it benefits from it because... Father Hill is yet you spend so much of the early show with the again is it is it a Leland Gaunt figure? What is this person's angle with this mysterious interloper who's come in? So you spend so much of it trying to get a read on Father Hill that you know the things that would be jarringly peculiar just come across as again you're you're just trying to feel out this character. When you go back and rewatch it. I'll just say right now is rewatching all of Hamish Linklater's scenes, you know, with the full context now of, you know, that he's Pruitt and, and Pruitt's full context is so, so rich and rewarding. And it was fun, like I mentioned, because I would rewatch episodes as I went. So as you would get nuggets of his information, <laughs> I would rewatch the episode and be like, oh, I got this. Go an episode later. Oh, now and keep going back. So I kind of got it piecemeal rewarded as i kept repeating episodes because mildred tells you 16 times who the fuck he is and that's my favorite (laughs) moment in the show it's well it starts with that is when he shows up to give mildred her first mass when he visits her and there's the bit where he comes upstairs and she has a bit where she looks at him and furs her brown says john and her daughter says you know no mom it's not and all that stuff's great it's the moment that sarah leaves the room and there's the beat of Father, or, you know, we know it's, it's Pruitt, looking at Mildred. And just watch Hamish Linklater's silent performance of him looking at Mildred in this scene and pulling her overcoat up. It's, it's honestly hard for me to talk about it without tearing up. It is that powerful just in his performance. And again, it's one of those things he he has such, you know, this peculiar cadence, like you mentioned, where initially, again, you spend so much time trying to feel him out. And then when you have that full context uh, for the character, 
good lord is a lot of his scenes just riveting and and in terms of the show's precision too just a, a real quick note is a, a lot of shows especially now that we're you know in this you know the era of a lot of shows being online and serialized that way and we're moving into more fully serialized storytelling particularly now with shows being bingeable well a lot of shows will get tossed out well it feels more like a novel or we want it to feel like a novel you know where it's that richness and whatnot i felt that more strongly in midnight mass than i have in anything and, and related to the thing i mentioned earlier which is its precision there is no bloat i would say nope there's nothing superfluous everything matters in one degree or another, usually in more than one way, yep. especially for the rewatch. There's no, we had to pad out an episode. There's no, we had to set this up as a backdoor pilot. It is just everything in this feels like it is just a cog in an engine that is serving its purpose and rolling to its inevitable conclusion. But every bit is an important cog. Every scene matters. And it's also, and it's one of those, like, as much as I love these characters, I don't really come out of it thinking, I wish I got more of this, this, and this, and this. You know, nope. I, I, I like, I, said, I could watch these actors just talk to each other about fucking anything because they're phenomenal actors and Flanagan directs them well. And so, yeah, I could do that. But in the context of the show, I come out of that thinking, it's like, no, I, I got everything I needed. <laughs> Out of pretty much every character. Absolutely. I wanted more of Timmy and the Whack Shack. Does that count? <laughs> that counts. Well, you got him playing the organ. He is the organist too, right? So, yeah. yeah. So you got that. Sorry. I had to bring up Timmy and the Whack Shack at some point because every time I saw it, all I could think of was Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters, if anybody knows that reference. I do not. <laughs> You've all seen it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll leave that to our audience. <laughs> but yeah you're absolutely right about its precision and about it feeling like a novel in fact i at one point referred to this as the best book i read this year nice yeah actually to throw one other thing out on that i mentioned earlier that episode six is probably my favorite episode overall it's incredibly well done in terms of again because so many elements of this so much of the dna of this is just infused consciously or not from stephen king you know because I, I know a lot of it is consciously, but I'm sure even more of it is unconsciously. What's the stigma about Stephen King? The endings always suck. I've only read like three or four of his books, but I know that. Hell, they joke about it in it, chapter two. Episode six, when you get to the bit where there is the procession, and which is it played marvelously, the, you know, the candlelit procession to the church. And then they get into the church and just the rhythm of that and as that plays out, you just feel so assured. It's like, we're, we're, this is episode, we've got a whole another episode after this. I don't know how bad shit this is going to go in the church thing. Turns out, really bad shit. Really bad shit. But I felt so assured. It's like, yeah, this is going to stick the landing. Again, in terms of this show being so precise and not feeling like anything was cut short, where it feels like it you know rushes to the finish line. And six was where I really felt it. It was like, oh, it's just, I can I can rest easy. This is absolutely going to stick the landing. You know what six makes me think of? The Walking Dead. For two main reasons. One, the big thing with The Walking Dead was, you know, for a while they thought, oh, you get bit or you get scratched and you're going you're gonna to get infected and come back. And one of the big reveals in that series is, no, everyone is infected 
no matter how you die, you're coming back. Mm -hmm. Like, you are destined to be a zombie. It's going to happen. And the funny thing in this is, it's a very similar premise with everyone who's a church attendee. Because they've been drinking the spiked ceremonial wine at communion every Sunday. And so they're all tainted. It is in all of them. And all it takes is for any one of them to die. And guess what? Welcome to the party. You know, you're now one of us. And it was a fascinating twist that they were all just these like vampiric time bombs waiting to go off. And I really liked that. I thought it was a really nice touch that you needed to deal with these people in a way that knowing you couldn't stop them. Even if you were to try and kill them now, they're just going to stand up five minutes later and be a massive thorn in your side. In fact, Bev says that. Yeah, it was one of my favorite lines of the show, <laughs> where she's like, what are you going to do, shoot me? I'll just be back up stronger in five minutes. Blam! Shoots her down and goes, we have five minutes. <laughs> Although it does turn out it wears off. If you wait long enough, yes. Given the last line of the show. Absolutely. But there's a second thing uh, that reminded me of The Walking Dead with this, and that is, in The Walking Dead, they never use the word zombie. Ever. Zombies don't really exist in that world. It's it's like, ah, walkers, eaters, ah, what is that? It's sort of like, what do you mean people can come back from the dead? I've never conceptualized this before. Very similar feel to this with vampires. Like, nobody says vampire even once through the entire series. Yep. And everyone's just kind of like, wait, what is this kooky thing where I have a desire for blood? <laughs> I personally find that fun. It's a little hard to uh, pull kind of a, a disbelief from because vampirism is so prevalent throughout all of the myth cycles. Salem's lot is in yeah, the movie. exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's funny when I think about it. I'm like, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, it's fun to see it in practice. Yeah, I loved everything we got with, you know, the angel slash vampire in this, especially when the, the first sequence you know the, the flashback with father pruitt oh, when you know, the vampire pounces on him fucking love and there's the shot of the the wings as as it's feeding i'd love to hear more about the designs obviously a lot of classic like overtly you know nosferatu-esque quality you know the bald head the, the long mm -hmm. fingers the talons and whatnot but the way the wings were designed yes. you, you get that close up it felt very like william blake to me like the william blake red dragon painting which you know, yes they talk about and just the way the musculature was, I was like, this feels very William Blake to me. So I'd love to see what the visual references were. But I just love how the character is treated throughout the show. That is, you know, no lines, but it's, you know, it's obviously a cognizant being that is willing to dress up in vestments and basically be a ritual hype man standing at the front of the, at the altar like, yeah! It's like, Angel? All right, let's go with Angel. I, I got the impression they were trying to convey an ageless entity that this thing was ridiculously years old, you know, like you just wouldn't be able to conceptualize it. And because of that, it just sort of, I felt exuded itself in a manner of disregard, sort of like I have fed, I'm happy. You have notions of what I am, what you want to do. I'm curious. Sure. Why not? And it just sort of, went along with Father Paul and his notions and his plan out of sheer boredom. <laughs> so like, like, I'm going to feed regardless. Let's see how this plays out. And 
absolutely. Everything you've said is correct. Let's move forward and preach your gospel. It's like, <laughs> I think motherfucker just didn't speak English. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it got the impression it was telepathic. Yeah, it was something like that. He he talks about being, being able, able to, to hear it. Yeah, said, exactly. Yeah. You know, so it, it was, and clearly it communicated enough where, like, if this thing was bestial and he's like, here, put this on, you know, he's probably got his head torn off the first time he tries to put a jacket on it, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> but it clearly was game for what was going on. But at yep. the same time, it has no grand desires or grand machinations. It's just like, I'm going to eat. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else is gravy. Eat to my right. detriment. I just want to go where the cats are. Humans are benefits. But I really, it's been so long since I've had a cat. I just want to go and have those cats. But you know, typically, like even with Salem's Lot, you know, the vampire is the main entity. It's the one making the choices. It has its main dude out there doing everything for it. Is it Barlow? It makes, Barlow yeah, is the Barlow's vampire? It, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so, but it's making the decisions. Like, here's the plan. Here's what we're doing. Go make this happen. You're my eyes and ears in the day. Don't fail me. This thing, I feel, would never have said, don't fail me. It would be like, I'm chill. I'm cool. I'm doing it. The minute I'm done with you, I'm fucking done with you. But, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> if it had one line and that line was exquisite, that would have been perfect. <laughs> it was very much this entity that was just passing the centuries casually. I think it was trapped for a long time. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Boy, I'm a sucker for Sandstorm Reveals Ancient Temple with Monster in it, man. That's oh, hell yeah. Ooh, baby. So good. So. To circle back, Eric, you said episode six was your favorite. Mike's favorite episodes are five and seven. And he said the last 15 minutes of seven are his favorite thing he's ever worked on. Mm. Uh, Trevor's favorite is five, but six has his favorite sequence. And I think you can probably guess which one it is. And we talked about I, I don't know that I have a favorite episode. And I was reading my notes trying to determine if I actually put that somewhere. And a couple of things jumped out at me. So we we talked about the favorite AA meeting. And you, you mentioned the episode five one was yours. Uh, I've got notes on that, which says, so the first note is Bev expressing doubt might be my favorite bit. And that was when he was telling her to come over so he could show Riley the bloodlust. And she was like, I, I don't know about this dog. And then my very next note is, okay, nope. It's when he yells at him about honesty and Riley says jealous, which is another one of That's those peak moments in the scene. series for me. Yeah. And then finally, it's like, oh, no, actually, it's just the shot of bed seething as Paul lets Riley go. So we talk about favorites shifting just fucking moment by moment yeah. as I walk through this. Within the scene. Yep. It's a hell of a scene. So let's circle back to that scene in six, which, as we mentioned, was their favorite sequence. A couple of things about it. He said that six was the most difficult to shoot the episode, and it took a week to film that scene. Mm. Most camera setups he's ever done. It took 103 unique shots to build it. And every person had to be tested for COVID every day. And he said it rivaled episode six of Hill House in difficulty. Wow. Mm. So it's an incredible scene. It's, you know, brutal, violent, powerful, emotional. It's just, it's got sort of everything in it, I thought. And as a sort of accumulation of what you're building to. And you know it's coming because you see the one shot of the, the blood on the walls earlier uh, in the, the series. I think in three maybe one two, or two but, riley's yeah. vision so one of the things i liked about it was the build-up where they're walking through the town with the lights the procession yeah the procession and they're singing did you look up what they're singing mm -mm. okay 
we'll, we'll talk about the Newton brothers and the hymns in the backgrounds in this, but this is very much a foreground hymn because they're all singing. And let me tell you, for a small town church that doesn't have a choir, these people have some very lovely singing voices. Uh, having been in a lot of small churches, I question that reality. On that note, you were talking about Mike Flanagan's favorite moment being the last 15 minutes. This is where I had a bit of an episode five reaction because everyone's singing, you know, in in the town circle. And it was like, yes, this is great. But I've been to enough church sessions to know that somewhere in there is the motherfucker who can't keep a pitch and is that void of sound who keeps pulling down everyone around him. And that's me. And so all I could think is beautiful sequence. But somewhere in that crowd was someone going, God Damn it, Larry, for once in your fucking life, can you keep a pitch? <laughs> Even in the moment of death, you're a fuck-up <laughs> In In my church, the, one of the last ones that I attended, I mean, I don't get any closer to church now than I was listening to Holly Holy while I was running this Sunday morning in the sun. That's about as close oh. as I get to church these days. Nice. But uh, I used to run the sound system, and the booth for the sound system was up right next to the choir. So when the choir is singing, obviously I shut up, but when it was just regular singing, you know, I get up there, open my hymnal and start bellowing them out. And I could feel the choir looking at me like, could you get this tone deaf motherfucker away from me? <laughs> but at any rate, so the song they're singing, is, it's called Hark the Loud Celestial, or better known as Holy God, We Praise Thy Name. It's one of those, it's an eight verse hymn, which for my money, are always the worst ones because, man, having to stand through eight verses yeah, the worst. So long. But they sing most of it. And, you know, they're, they're rocking verse eight by the time they, they finish her in mass. But what I I read the, the lyrics and I was kind of wondering if they picked that one because of verse three or verse six. So the verse three goes, Lo, the apostolic train, join the sacred name to hallow. Prophets swell the loud refrain and the white robe martyrs follow. And from morn to set of sun, through the church, the song goes on. Which feels pretty, you talk about precision. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty apt. You know, this this hymn was not written for this show. It was written ages ago. Verse 6 is, From thy high celestial home, judge of all again returning, will believe thou shalt come in the dreaded doomsday morning, when thy voice shall shake the earth and the startled dead come forth. I, uh, I thought that was... Maybe very much on purpose and not just Mike Flanagan using some of his old favorites here. No, I believe that 100%. I mean, even in like all of Bev Keen's, you know, her character obviously being someone who weaponizes religion and, you know, the ability to, within this massive tome, to be able to pull some item to fit whatever every scenario bit of malice you wish to convey that's was one of my first notes on it which is i don't think the show's anti-religion the show is anti-malice yes yeah but just the the way that they would write around her pulling quotes out and whatnot was like yeah they're doing a great job there's obviously you know a lot of thought put in and a lot of knowledge not just from childhood growing up in terms of the hymns the quotes and whatnot so again just expertly crafted for the hymns in episode one, I was thinking, you know, this is, hymns are fine so far, but I I need some holy, holy, holy. And then episode two, boom, right out of the gate. Yes! Holy, holy, holy. Yeah. Just one other note on this hymn. It has a bit of a dark history, too. Uh, it was in the German military handbook. And they changed oh. some of the verses to be very Nazi-oriented. 
verses. Now, I don't know. Again, it feels on purpose that this was the song they're singing, and I, I really appreciated that. And a lot of, you talk about the hymns, and a lot of the background hymns drove me fucking bonkers. <laughs> because I could hear them, and they, they were always these very slow hymns playing. Like, when Riley leaves after the, when he goes to wander around the town as a vampire, when he leaves after their big confrontation, you know, it's, oh, sons and daughters are playing. Or when they're having their chat about death, it's, um, well, at the very end, they're singing, uh, Nearer My God to Thee. And that's what's playing very slowly over the chat about death. Mm-hmm. And my favorite, it was, comes up a couple of times, is Were You There, Lord? Yeah. Uh, which is one of my favorite. And you hear that, like, at the end of episode three is the first time they use that. And then it comes back in a other beautiful ways. But the Newton brothers and their use of music in this, and particularly their use of hymns. Yep. You know, that triggered my memories on all of these, so I had to find out which ones they were. But I, brilliant, brilliant use. Yeah, the Newton brothers are fantastic, and their collaborations with Mike Flanagan have just, they've done a lot of great scores, but the, the Mike Flanagan collaborations are consistently the highlight because it always seems like for all of them, there's room for them to do or they're asked to do something unique or some approach or something sonically that's a bit different for this one too it, it, in there's incorporating the hymns which it was a bit of in like blind manor you know where they incorporated the you know, willow whaley and stuff like that but for the the actual score part of it it's a very unique sounding newton brothers score and it's very much feels like them doing it's like a24 scores basically it's like you want your mark corvin you want your colin stetson here give me that fucking cello vroom 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 there that was <laughs> the most overt horror sound is is that that cello with with yep. joe and when joe dies that was rough i, I wrote that <laughs> down it's like this is the first horror soundtrack in this entire show that that death killed me because i i'm a sucker for redemption and so you know, joe is just this despicable individual and then there's a glorious scene where lisa comes in and just like unloads on him you know the reasons why she hates him and all the things he did to her that he reached through time and stole from her. Oh my god, that line mm. was phenomenal. And then she forgives him, and they're just both crying their eyes out. And that, like, that moment drives him to actually like attend his first AA meeting. And like, you know, he's, he's talking about how he feels like he's the kind of person that could now visit his sister. Unfortunately, he missed that window because she passed. But you know, and, and there's all these things that you know he's been this awful individual, but now his redemption is on on the horizon just in time for it to get pulled out from under him. I'm like, oh, God, no! <laughs> so, just, like, my heart just fell into my stomach. It's rough. Yeah, his yeah. death. And again, yeah, they like Jake mentioned, they have the jump cut where, you know, it cuts away, but it jumps back, and all of a sudden there's wailing choir for that horrific sting. And it's awful. And it also made me think of massive headwound Harry from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> of the bit with the dog pulling on the prop and Dana Carvey holding in the prop. The results of that scene are one of the one of the few moments I, I don't really have criticisms of this. I loved every second, but there are scenes that maybe I liked less than others. And when Bev shows up and sees Joe dead, it's one of those that made my brain just go, hmm, okay. Because her reaction is just, she's just a little bit, it feels like a little bit too on the ball. 
And this is because of Nick that I had this reaction because I have been given to understand in 15 years of playing Cthulhu <laughs> that if you see a dead body, regardless of your past history or job, you make a sanity check. And she does not. She rolls in there and she's just like, yep, dead body. This motherfucker's dead. And then, and, I, and I'll say this when, when the mayor comes in and she's strong she just has strong mental resolve that's all yes so did i (laughs) no you didn't (laughs) and when um the mayor and uh big bearded dude sturge 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 come in you can't remember sturge you've been talking about letter kenny and start last episode man i can't remember anything you're lucky you got the names i got i thought for sure you were gonna be sturge every time you could The local Crockett skid. <laughs> when she comes home, and, and I gotta say, Sturge. if I was standing over a dead body and somebody told me to hide the body and then slap me, there would be an uppercut so quickly in their fucking future. And they're just like, all right, slap me, whatever. I'll go hide this dead body. Like, and that, that was the moment, man. She needed to be punched. But uh, yeah, it, it's I'm mostly joking. It was just one of those moments like she's just a little bit too on the ball in that scene, I thought. Well, I mean, it's the she is the kind of person best suited for that moment. Sure, she is someone who has memorized every Bible verse she could need to pull out in any situation and turn it to her advantage. She is constantly playing angles. She is constantly cataloging things that can be used, you know, for her or against you. And she walked in and immediately did a calculation and was like, "I'm still backing this horse." But this is how it's going to have to go now. So it felt more natural for me. Like if anyone, anyone on that island was going to have that reaction, it was going to be her. For sure. Sets up one of my favorite moments in the whole show, which is her after Michael Truco as Wade, the mayor, comes in and Sturge after they come in. And there's you know the bit where she's bringing them up to speed. And she has a bit where she tells Father, bro, you explain to them what happened. And he just, it's, uh, something came over me. Something moved through you, motherfucker. And <laughs> the way she pivots him. But his yep. deadpan instant, ah, something came over me. I don't fucking, <laughs> just, it's, he, it's a riot. It's hilarious. It's, it's interesting because he's basically in the corner suffering from almost like shell shock. Like this has happened and he's dealing with this simultaneous, like massive endorphin rush from like the thrill and the high that feeding gives these you know, entities while also dealing with the massive what the frat just happened, you know, kind of mentality. He's in complete shock in the corners going, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He he plays shock well. Yes. I thought. Very checked out. My favorite bit of that is when Riley comes back and sees the vampire and looks at him and Father Paul there just goes, oh. Yep. <laughs> it's just masterful perfect i mean hamish linkletter is clearly the him and and kate siegel from my mind were absolutely the acting giants of this particular show i everybody's good everybody is good yes but But hamish linkletter is a force and kate siegel 100 if if only for her final speech the how did i forget that speech oh my god it ends with the i am that i am yeah so i don't cry a lot but I am that I am. <laughs> the waterworks turned on. That was nice. It's funny. My my only other sort of half complaint about this now that I think about it involves Bev not getting quite enough of a comeuppance. I just wanted 
comeuppance, but I wanted it to come in the form of Annie Flynn. Like I wanted Annie Flynn to have her, you know, sit down and shut up moment from like Footloose where, uh, <laughs> and she kind of got it. She tells her in, in a very, and I guess a very realistic fucking Methodist way. You're not a good person. Like, holy shit. <laughs> Might as well just kicked her grandma, you know, but. And your ambrosia sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What else should we do? We got the Flanagan hates hands scene with Paul digging the cross into his hands. Yep. Less terrible, I guess, than most, but at least it was there. That felt felt pretty good. Got to keep consistent with his destruction of hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, did, we didn't really talk about it, but what it possibly means with Riley's dream being prophetic. Yeah, a lot of... I've actively avoided reviews of this. The only things I've read are... The piece Mike Flanagan wrote, uh, the editorial he wrote, I forget if it was for Entertainment Weekly or Bloody Disgusting, I forget. The piece he wrote where he basically laid out, you know, exactly how personal this show is to him. I read that, and I read the Vox article, the rather notorious one that's going around at the moment. Oh, you you actually read it. Uh, Sorry. Chunks of it, yeah. And like I said, most of it, it was like... I'm still mad about it. it, You know, folks like what they like. Uh, It's very clearly a COVID analogy. No, it isn't. Yeah, that one was like, yeah, no, so much of this had been put in motion beforehand. But yeah, I'm, I, if we go point by point, we'll be here all night. But, uh, but one of the things I'd be curious. I'm hot I, about that. One. <laughs> <laughs> I I actively avoided reviews, aside from like tweets of folks saying, you know, who got the previews and saying, oh, it's great. Because I wanted to go in cold and I wanted to go into this discussion. You know, it was just my POV as I could. But I'm really curious to see how folks track with, you know, Riley's vision sequences in his dreams and, and the payoff for that and, and how that's perceived because again that's a lot of you know well, what do you bring to it and what do you want to take away from it i have a, an absolute take on it and i think it relates to the very end of seven where aaron gives her speech how could i forget i'm the cosmos dreaming of itself and i'm a dream over and over and yeah. i think him having dreams is him and i think it's reasonable to say that her speech at the end is probably where Mike Flanagan is at in his yes. belief. Structure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without question. Yeah. I think that's what these dreams are, is Riley remembering before the dream begins again, again and again. But it's fun because even with that being the truth and the reveal of like life after death, technically, if you go back and listen to their two versions, they're still both right. <laughs> it's like yeah it's it, i love that like in the end all endings are the same ending and therefore no one is wrong and it, it it's a nice touch it's nice to see like you know these people who are who have come to terms with with where their road ends have a full grasp of what's waiting for them it's it's nice it's very well done so over the course of this conversation i think i've decided on my favorite episode ever since eric said that i've clearly i've been obsessing about that I think it's three just because there's so many great moments and scenes in that. Like I've mentioned the, the Holly Holy scene and how much I love that and the way the music is saying the, the way it plays out. That's the one that's got the scene between Lisa and Joe where she forgives him and he just can't even speak. He breaks down. One of my favorite scenes in that is after the AA meeting where Joe and Riley are walking home and yeah. talking about being different people which I think is such an emotional and powerful scene. Yes. It's also got the most frustrating scene in the show for my money, which was the argument between the sheriff 
and Bev at the town hall meeting. And we haven't really talked about the sheriff. And if I have another gripe, it's that I wish he was in this more. Absolutely. Uh, I think he was a phenomenal character. I like what they did with him. I like Rahul is a fabulous actor. We knew that from Blind Manor. And yep. and he's amazing on Twitter, obviously. Yeah, he had that tweet today. It was somebody showing oh the God. cat the end of it. And he's like, why would you show your cat that scene? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when we first see Ali's bedroom, I didn't go through and look at all the stuff. But one of the things that's on the wall is a robot. You know, so it looks like a hand-drawn robot. I'm I'm choosing to believe that that's a nod to Rahul's gunpla building. <laughs> you know, that he, he always tweets about his Gundam model. So I'm choosing to believe that. Nice. So, yeah. So I'll say episode three. Another thing of it, and again, to keep coming back to the Holly Holy sequence, is it's the first chance you get to see the younger brother's room when she comes and knocks on the door and he runs out. And poster. Well, there's two things about the posters. The first thing is that the, one of the best parts of the show is that he is wearing a T-shirt. Did either of you notice the T-shirt? Can't remember. No. It's a hot dog punching a clown. <laughs> this guy runs out of his room in a t-shirt of a hot dog punching a clown to go have a, a canoe kiss with his newly restored love of his life. And I just, I, bravo. <laughs> hot dog punching a clown, that, that is a kid with confidence, style, and grace. <laughs> he, he also has two posters. One is for Starla May, which is a swimsuit poster. No idea. Couldn't find a single thing on the internet related to that. And the other one was Samantha Styles, October 9th at the Brick House. Nothing. Not a goddamn thing. And it's driving me bonkers. It's, it's <laughs> because it feels like it's free. And, and look, the prop designer, if these are just made up posters, you know, whatever to get around. Thing, great job. Drives me nuts. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I kind of want to see Samantha Styles October 9th at the Brick House, too. But anyway, yeah, I would say that that's my favorite. And uh, Hot Dog Punching a Clown is a big part of it. It's funny. Um, like, episode three is the one I've watched the most. And really... Like we mentioned, everything is so integral in this show. The way it's structured, it's it's difficult to pull something out. It's difficult to even think of them as episodes because they flow in so naturally. But three is particularly funny because three is, you know, an episode that has such a particularly unique mechanic in and of itself with the sequences of, you know, Father Pruitt essentially in his mind palace, you know, with the confession and, and the faux stations of the cross and whatnot. That is you know, one of the rare self-contained you know, sequences that's unique to an individual episode where it has kind of an in-episode arc just built around that. Yeah. I don't know. I, it, it's all good. They're all my favorite. Everybody in this is my favorite. Absolutely. That's what it comes down to. I, I just want to show about the sheriff surviving and becoming a vampire hunter or something. That would be glorious. <laughs> yeah. That would be fantastic. I'll take anything with him working with Mike Flanagan. I'm fine with whatever we get. He's just Absolutely. so good. But really, like I said, if we went down and talked about you know who's great at it we'd be here all night because literally everyone in this is terrific you know we, we didn't mention before Kristen Lehman as Riley's mother great Annabeth Gish who I was so excited to see back after being in Haunting Hill House Alex Esso in terms of folks who have become part of Flanagan's regular troupe I, I'm fascinated to see what her future performances are because you know we see her in Bly Manor Yep. And then, you know, she's in Dr. Sleep and in Dr. Sleep, she's tasked with, you know, we need you to be Shelley Duvall. We, we need you to replicate one of the you know most unique cinematic performers ever mm -hmm. <laughs> in a way it. that that feels fluid and doesn't, you know, won't throw the audience out. So 
what a task that was. And then in this, it's like, yeah, you're we're gonna put boatloads of makeup on you, and you have to you know regress and age. So I'm curious to see what sort of hoops she has to jump through. But she is is absolutely terrific. At this point, I'm thinking we're gonna have to end up just doing a bonus episode on Starry Eyes, <laughs> which I haven't seen in since I first saw it when it first came out, but. Just to talk about her performance in it, because she's fantastic. I, I would like to quickly say I was uh, not seeing where things were going initially. So I found it very interesting. They had this like fantastic lineup of actors and all of them were aged up. <laughs> I yep. was like, I'm like, OK, interested. You know, it's like, uh, I guess they just wanted, you know, reuse the crew, I guess, maybe. And then it's just such a natural, slow progression of all of them de-aging. I'm like, oh, it's so well done. That was so smart and well thought out. It was funny because I, I read like somebody was doing an episode by episode thing. And I read the first one. This is after I watched the show. I, I, I Like Eric, I didn't read anything. I didn't even watch the trailers going into it. It was like I was so cold going into this. All I knew was that it was a book that got written in Hush. And the episode by episode guide, the first episode is like, yeah, I think there's some weird choices in this. Like there's all these people who are, you know, barely older than these other people and they're made to look old. And that seems like a weird choice to me. And I'm like, hmm, it's not. <laughs> oh, real quick. Community connection. I didn't oh, delve too deep yeah, in this because yeah. I was thinking too much about, you know, how much I love the show. So I just went with the fact that there's a visual effects guy named Doug Splatro who worked on this, who also worked on Community. That's, that's all you, I could I could have done more with this one, but it felt like, sure, I'm just going to throw it out there and we're just going to leave it at that. But uh, yeah, so there's at least one. There's others, but I didn't get too far into them. I just, I don't know. I could talk about this show forever and I probably will. There's a good chance we get into this again, you know, down the road. Like I mentioned, we, we hadn't done Haunting of Hill House yet. We hadn't done Haunting of Bly Manor and, and we, thought at some point we were going to do a Mike Flanagan TV episode, you know, potentially when Midnight Mass came out. But it's, you know, again, we, we tend to get so granular and those are television shows, even opposed to two hour films where we, we tend to get into, you know, like plot beat by beat. They were kind of daunting. It was like, well, we'll get to them at some point. And with this show, it was one of those. Yeah, we, we just have to talk about it amongst yeah. ourselves and get some stuff out there. And we have plenty to talk about. So it's <laughs> So yeah, we we very well make I've got stuff we haven't touched on. So yeah, there's a solid chance we revisit this down the road. Yeah. Like you said, I've got stuff I I haven't touched on. I mean, looking at it right now, I mentioned uh Timmy in the Wax Shack at the <laughs> the Crockpot Luck. My church used to have a ham and oyster dinner. I was having flashbacks during this whole thing for wow. You know, that kind of Also the food looked real good. Yes, it did. But like did anybody notice what they were playing? The band? The... Click, yeah. No, I assumed it was an original by... It's, it's not. Oh, okay. it's, the first song they're playing is Democracy, which is by Leonard Cohen. Oh, okay. Although it's it's very different from the Cohen. The lyrics are the same, but they, they play it kind of like the Lumineers played the cover, which I thought was sort of interesting. It made me wonder if uh, how that particular one got chosen. It's not super, I didn't think, relevant, but maybe it did. The other one that they play is If You Could Read My Mind by Gordon Lightfoot, which okay. is another great 70s. So it's in the same mix with like Harry Chapin and Neil Diamond. So it made me wonder about the, the presence of the Leonard Cohen tune in this when everything else is from a more of an era in the Leonard Cohen tune. I think it's from like 1990 or something. It's got a real da almost dance vibe and spoken word because Leonard Cohen barely actually sang. So anyway, 
I, I realize it's late to bring that up, but I was looking at the notes and I just, I got to mention that at least because I've got so many music notes in this. But anyway, and the music was the first thing I instantly fell in love with. with it. Yeah, literally scene one. Yeah. But in, in the end, look, I would say, you know, it's, it's like a lot of things. It's the, the one I most watched recently, but this feels very much like my favorite out of all of Flanagan's works. As much as I love Hill House, as much as I love Bly Manor, as much as I love you know, Oculus and the miracle that is Ouija origins of evil. This one hit me so square in the me, you know, mm-hmm. yep. Flanagan says that the, you know, I, you know, I am that I am this show feels like the me that is the me. I mean, it's just everything he's talking about, everything he does, the whole community, everything feels so relatable in my own life. It just, it clicked with me right down to my damn bones. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Mike for Thank you, Mike. for this. You really are our favorite human because this is this is something I'm gonna be thinking about and watching and talking about for a long time. And I am I'm gonna make people watch this. Like I talked my brother into it and he never watches shit that I recommend him to watch. <laughs> In fact I think he just purposely avoids something when I tell him to watch it. But it was the Harry Chapin that got him, but he loved it. So yeah, so this is this is gonna be a central through line for me for a long time. It's kind of fascinating. It's clearly Mike's favorite as well. Like he, the way, the way he describes it you know, publicly, even like I think I saw on Twitter, he said, I'm going to be chasing this for the rest of my life. You know, that this is exactly how he wanted to do it. It came out perfectly. It was everything he wanted it to be. And to him, it's perfection. And some part of him feels that he'll always be trying to recreate this moment. And it's wonderful to see someone in a, this creative space be able to create something they can feel that way about you know it's like this is mine it is perfection and i'm going to love this forever and if i get anything even close to this again i'm going to be a happy person and that just warms my heart it makes me think of the drizdo erden books wait what that that concept yeah <laughs> i i was thinking about this when i was, the whole week when he was talking about it so they're in, in the Drizzt. Yeah, no, no, no. It makes sense. I'm so excited. <laughs> this show reminded me of R.A. Salvatore. You have my attention. <laughs> the dwarf in that, you know, he's known to be this great weapons maker and, you know, the, the forger and all that. Very typical dwarf type character. I can't remember the names. Uh, you're lucky I got Drizzt. Drizzt, yeah, yeah. And in the series, the original series, he makes a hammer and he talks about how every dwarf forger knows they make their most perfect piece and it's all downhill from there. Once they have forged this perfect thing, everything else pales a little bit by comparison. So it's, it's this wondrous moment of pure perfection and creativity and then sadness knowing that they've hit their perfection. And I, I hope Mike doesn't feel like that, but I was watching this and literally as soon as I finished it, I, I started thinking about that because I'm a big fucking nerd. But uh, I was waiting for you to go even further down D&D just now when you're busting that R.A. Salvatore books. And, and all these people saying it's a fucking vampire. It's not a fucking vampire. It's a dark elf who's infused with the power of Loth and a sprout of bat wings and it's level and just and it'll start running. Nope. Challenge rating 16. But, but that's what I think of when you're saying that, what you said, Nick, and, and I think you're absolutely right. In terms of this being his favorite and the peak. Before I give quick two cents on 
the show. I, it occurs to me, I think we missed it at the beginning. We, we made the reference to our favorite human, but I should do the first half now. Mike Flanagan. Go back to episode four for this context for that, which is followed by he's our favorite human. It's a bye-bye birdie <laughs> thing. There's a big thing about it. The other reason that was stuck in my head is speaking of Paul Lynn, who does the famous version of that, was all I can envision is, you know, the vampire ripping through those cats in the uppers, just singing, Our fair is a veritable smorgasbord, <laughs> after the crowds have ceased. <laughs> so I'm glad we got that out of the way. Just as I think we've hit that in every Mike Flanagan episode at this point. And other episodes. And other episodes, yeah. It's, Prevalent. It's ridiculous, but we had to hit that real quick because we're, we're nothing if not consistent. Um, like I said, four episodes in a row, Mad Midnight Bomber. So, yeah, baby. It's, it's our new thing. Just quick wrap up on like my position on the show. When I saw Hill House, I was so ecstatic because it felt like someone had finally made the kind of horror series I always wanted to see. Yes. And I haven't seen a ton. Like I haven't seen seasons two to four of Channel Zero. I haven't seen the Exorcist TV show. I will when we get to the Exorcist franchise. That one I'm curious about because I've heard it's good. And we were talking earlier about constructing television in the network format where you have commercial breaks. And what a challenge it must be to like build to scares and sustain tension in a commercial break format. So I'm really interested in, in watching The Exorcist show. But in giving the broader format you know, that Netflix and other platforms allow, I, I hadn't seen one that had creeped me out. And so when you got to Hill House and you coupled all of Flanagan's sensibilities, you know, his dedication to characters, the great casting, all the folks he works with on the production of you know, Michael Feminari, the Newton brothers down the line. Of course, he always has Trevor Macy from Intrepid Pictures as his producer. It, the one Easter egg that's not in the show Midnight Mass that I wanted. It was when you get to the end of the credits and there's the Intrepid Pictures logo with the dude up on the peak holding his arms out. Just one of the episodes I wanted just the vampire to swoop down and just snatch that guy off. <laughs> and just, yeah! That would have been a great Easter egg. But So Hill House was big for me because it was all of those sensibilities transposed to a long form format and it was legitimately creepy. And then Blind Manor, the same. So those shows meant so much to me. And then you get to Midnight Mass and it just felt like basically, and again, this is, this sounds fawning and you know, who knows how an opinion will evolve over time, but this feels very much like Flanagan perfected. Yep. He's, I think he's right in terms of this is what he's going to be chasing to the point that like, I know next up is Midnight Club, but it, it, I, one of my first thoughts on finishing episode seven was like, dude, go do, a romantic comedy, go back and, or do sci-fi, like go back to Ghosts of Hamilton Street, which you did years ago, you know, do that again, just something, maybe do a genre shift. And obviously Midnight Club is probably going to be unique tonally from what little I know of uh, Season of Passage, the sci-fi one he's got coming up, that one's going to be quite unique. But Midnight Mass, it felt like it, it was, we knew going in how passionate he was about it because it was clear just from the hints in previous material and seeing it come to life as perfectly as it did, as intricately as it did, and where everything clicks, I I am absolutely over the moon for this show. And I, and I just adore it front to back. And it means a lot when you have a creator whose works mean a lot to you, and they make something that means 
a lot to them and just the way it resonates you know this was you know, expectations were high going into midnight mass and it exceeded every one of them for me i loved everything about it it is perfection for his oeuvre it's i loved how invested in the characters he is i love how he builds them and just some part of you either just loves or connects to each one or absolutely despises in one case (laughs) (laughs) and you honestly care about the things that happen to these people you care about their opinions you care about their goals their dreams their fears the things that pain them and then as things progress those events matter they truly matter to you at every step of the way and it's so organic and natural and just lovely. And then on top of that, the visuals and the, the makeup, the, oh, mm, it is probably one of my favorite vampiric pieces that are out there. Flanagan's Silver Hammer. <laughs> I will say, if you're a person coming into this going, yeah, baby, I want, you know, lost boys, blood gushing everywhere kind of effects, you know. This is not a show for you. It is much more of a slow burn. It is very much more of a gutting piece than a disgusting type approach. That being said, I feel it doesn't hold back. I think it's very honest with what it's doing. And Mm -hmm. I think that that just makes it A-plus material, top to bottom. One of the things he said in the Q&A was that part of his process is removing the horror elements and seeing if you'd still care about the characters in the story. And absolutely. absolutely. No doubt. Uh, I'd say with most, if not all of the stuff, but yeah, absolutely with this one. It's funny. I, my roommate, Steve, friend of the pod, started watching the show yesterday and he had just started episode one. And, and I thought, well, well, I'll sit down and I'll watch a couple, but I'm not going to watch the whole thing with him because I want to sit and take notes, which means I'm going to pause and back up and stuff. I said, we watched all seven. I yep. just went through. I took one note, and it was in episode one. Aside from that, it was the laptop was shut, and I just was watching the show. I Absolutely. just got swept up in it and swept up in his reaction. What was the note? Oh, I don't even remember what it was. It, it wasn't the Highlander reference. I had the Highlander <laughs> reference instantly. <laughs> but I remember taking like one thing, because normally when I take notes, I pause, and I wasn't going to make Steve pause while I type shit out. Yeah. So that stuck out in my head, but it was one what Steve said when he finished it was he said, you know, it's, it's hard for me to even think of it, you know, really as a horror show because it's, it's so character intensive, you know. And but that yep. is there's a lot of different approaches to the horror genre, but you know, one certainly tried and true way is we mentioned before Mike Flanagan's sensibilities fall on characterizations. If you get characters right and characters matter, then the stakes matter or what you put them through matters in terms of your worldview. It can show, you know, it, like right now we're getting the optimistic Mike Flanagan, but like back in the Absentia and Oculus days is when we were getting cynical, you know, somewhat pessimistic mm-hmm. Mike Flanagan. But even then there was that attention to characters to some degree. But in that case, showing you using it to show you how cruel things could be moving towards very particularly cruel finales yep. in both of those. And now we, we, it, it's fascinating watching that evolve. But yeah, that's like I mentioned earlier, his sense of character has been one of the things that's drawn all three of us to his work. And and, for me, very much, it feels like this is kind of the apex of that. 
Amen. Amen, indeed. Thank you for joining us for this sermon of, you know, the works of you know our favorite human, Mike Flanagan. He's our favorite human. Oh, I got you both doing it. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, this has been fun. Again, we're probably going to revisit this show later, but in the meantime, we'll be back soon with another episode. We probably got another at least one mini episode kind of like this that'll probably be coming up before our next episode hits but it meant a lot to us to sit down and talk about a show that meant a lot to us so thank you to everyone involved thank you for listening to this we appreciate the support we love you all absolutely so we'll be back soon with another mini-sode but in the meantime this is eric signing off this is nick saying you know oh now i remember this is jake saying mike how could you not use brother love's traveling salvation show <laughs> Resurrection is good mob look, baby! <laughs> <laughs>